Welcome to the Spirituality of Strength Training with your host, Anna Willard. This podcast is dedicated to bring you knowledge, wisdom, inspiration, and guidance to wherever you may be on your health journey. For those who are new to me, I am a kettlebell strength coach, a movement nerd ninja, and an empowerment coach on a mission to bring you hope through our health. The root word of health comes from wholeness. The root word of wholeness comes from holy. Despite our differences with religion and spiritual beliefs, we are all human beings with a body that is designed to reflect this holiness through our health. It wasn't until my seventh year as a health profession where I went into a deep awakening of understanding what does it mean to train my spirit and to heal my spirit through the physical. You'll hear a little bit more about my story from other health professionals, from strength coaches, psychiatrists, spiritual gurus and leaders, to other people who talk about the importance of our health as a community body and the health of our planet as well. This podcast is to allow us to step into our whole health, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Thank you for being here. If you love what you hear, I encourage you to subscribe. If you want more inspiration and quotes from these podcasts, I encourage you to follow me on Instagram at Anna underscore Willard underscore. I encourage you to do a little bit of a movement, either yoga flow, go for a walk, sit in nature as you enjoy this episode. Hey, strong ones. Welcome to today's episode. This is my first interview after taking a little sabbatical, and I'm honored to be interviewing a good mentor of mine, Jill Coleman, also known as Jill Fit. I discovered her back in 2010. This was my first year water skiing competitively, and it was my first year entering in the fitness industry, and I didn't know where to go. And I discovered Jill Coleman or Jill Fit on the internet, and I knew one day I would be working with her. And that was just that like, gut feeling that I was like, Someday I'll know her. So I'm very honored to have her on the show. I have worked with her as a business, or she's being my business coach. Um, I think this is like our third year working together. And she's just always that constant little nudge, gentle nudge of like pushing me to that next level. So a super honored, Jill, for you to be on the show. Welcome. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It's totally my honor. And it's been so amazing for me to know you as a professional and to see you grow and change and just uh, help so many people. So I'm just honored to be here. Yeah. Now, um, this is with the concept or the theme of the fall fitness for forgiveness. Can you just share your story of your marriage and the infidelity and how important forgiveness was within your own practice and how that also related to your fitness component? Yeah. 
Gosh, thanks so much for asking. You know, this is a part of my story that I don't always get to tell because it's totally just separate from fitness. But, you know, one of the things that I always loved about fitness was it, like, and I know you do this too with your own clients, is like that power that you feel in your body, right? It kind of extends out into different areas of your life, whether that's career or relationships. And you build a sense of self-efficacy of like, I can do this thing over here. So growing up, being in sports, kind of similar to you, not on that level, but um, you know, and then teaching fitness classes and personal training and then being a, a figure competitor, to me, it always made me feel in my power, right? So I, I always felt in control. I was like, I, if I eat the right thing, I can control how my body looks. If I exercise the right way, I can control how my body looks. And if I can control how my body looks, then I can control the level of affirmation or approval that I get from other people or the world or whatever that looks like. And so right. for a long time, I, I was operating from this place of, um, you know, only feeling good enough if I'm fit enough, lean enough, whatever. And also that extended into my personal relationship. So um, I was kind of married, I would, I would consider kind of young, uh, to someone who was eight years older than me. And he was a physician at the time. And I was coming up in the personal training space and we had fitness in, in common. And it was like just fireworks from the get-go. And we ended up, um, ended up getting married and were married for a number of years. And in 2014, um, I found out that he had been having an affair for two years. And so I only give you the background of the fitness stuff because for me, I always was full steam ahead. I was always like, I have this perfect relationship. I have this perfect, you know, body. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I, I felt on, I felt, um, invincible in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think this was the first time in my life that I wasn't able to control something. I wasn't able to, um, you know, I didn't really have a say in that, you know, and I think as women, we typically tend to, and not just women, but we tend to maybe blame ourselves. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I'm not lean enough. I'm not fit enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not nurturing enough, whatever it is that we feel those inadequacies lie. And so for me at that moment, I was kind of left in this place of, we had a great relationship, or at least what I thought was, but also the rug was just pulled from underneath me. So I didn't know what to do at that point. And mm -hmm. if someone had told me in those moments, like, you know, eventually you'll be able to forgive him or you'll be able to have a, you know, a relationship with him or whatever, I wouldn't have been able to hear it. Right. Someone mm -hmm. actually told me, like, a couple of days later, like, be great. You know, if you can find like a, a little piece of gratitude for this lesson. And I was like, want to like punch him in the face. Like, right. Available. So everyone kind of has that experience, right. That there's someone they just feel so done wrong mm -hmm. and the, the trap with infidelity is that it is a betrayal but you have a society on your side telling you that you're the victim right so for me it was like i just i i felt like that was kind of my only option was to sit back and wait for him to ask for forgiveness mm. and wait for him to choose me and wait for him to work on himself and all these kind of things and that made me feel really out of my power Mm. I was like, I remember going to Barnes and Noble and reading some of these books, like how to get over infidelity and like, you know, what happens if your spouse cheats? And all of the books were very much like, um, make him pay and make him go to therapy and make him like all these mm. kinds of things. And I was just like, but what I, what can I do? Like, what can right. I to put me in my power? Fitness had, you know, given me that, that permission. What can I do to feel my power? And so that's when I started, and I know I've shared this with you too, um, Byron Katie's work. Important to me because it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with him. It was like, how can I choose my perception? How can I feel in my power alone, no matter what the world or this person over here is doing? Mm -hmm. So, the forgiveness aspect I mean, it was a long road, obviously. We ended up trying to stay together for about a year after that, and there was a lot of shame around that. Um, you know, don't perfect marriage, we don't know what we're doing, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of discomfort. 
a um, lot of just unable to communicate effectively with each other because obviously that's how we end up getting to the point of of infidelity in the relationship was a lack of communication or effective communication. Mm-hmm. And so it ended up being um, a year later when things just really weren't changing. And part of it was because he was still in love with this other woman and she had moved on. She was with someone else at that point. And so he was going through his own heartbreak, which was really odd for me to kind of watch from, right. afar, you know, and so there was a lot of moving pieces. But I ended up leaving the marriage not because I was angry or out of spite, but just because I realized that it was kind of a dead end at that point. And I was really getting to the point where I was feeling like a doormat. And so the forgiveness aspect came a lot later. And I'll tell you one of the moments that I kind of started to know, okay, it's okay to forgive him. I think sometimes we don't like to forgive because it feels like you're letting someone off the hook. Mm-hmm them any sort of like grace or empathy or even attempt to see it from their perspective it's almost like we're condoning the behavior and mm-hmm. i'm very anti uh you know like infidelity and anti-lying and all that kind of stuff so it felt really like i was almost betraying myself to forgive him if that mm-hmm. makes sense so I, I kept up my walls self-righteousness um you know i was just extremely self-righteous i was hurt i was mired in my pain this is even after i left the relationship about six months after i left i ended up going to byron katie's live event um and it's called the new year's cleanse and she has this tool called um judge your neighbor worksheet where you like actually judge the person i'm sure you've done it too mm-hmm. Person extremely harshly, and then you question those beliefs. So I was writing down, you know, my ex-husband's name is Jade, and I was saying, Jade is an adolescent. Jade is immature. Jade is self-righteous. Jade is um, uh, stubborn, right? Like all these things. Mm-hmm. And then one of the exercises is you actually start to turn some of those statements around to see if there might be alternative. Maybe Jade's not stubborn. Maybe there's instances where he's not self-righteous. And one of the turnarounds is when you turn around to yourself, mm-hmm. reading these statements. And I have to go, Jill is self-righteous. Jill is immature. Jill is stubborn. And I'm like, holy shit. I am these things. I've been these things, right? My lack Mm -hmm. of like ability to move on and process and forgive and all these kind of things. I was stuck and I was all the things that I was calling him. And that was Mm -hmm. like a light bulb moment. I actually got like really physically sick after that. Like I actually like had to leave the conference. Interesting. the conference, I was just like purging whatever that was. And for whatever reason, that switch totally changed my perspective. And uh-huh. we were able to have an actual, you know, relationship, friendship, talk through our stuff. Doesn't mean the hurts were gone entirely, mm-hmm. but I had a totally different attitude. And that was really when the forgiveness started, when I realized that my lack of ability to forgive him was really holding me back. Mm-hmm. Interesting. With um, that forgiveness, I know you kind of mentioned this, a lot of people will think like we need to wait for them to forgive or ask that forgiveness. What is the importance of just authentically forgiving yourself at the same time, forgiving the other person, but at the same time, creating that boundary and that um, new safety line for yourself through that process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved how you mentioned forgiving yourself because I think um, anytime we feel like there's some sort of betrayal, something that warrants forgiveness, there's always a piece of us that blames ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I know that, you know, in, in where people are maybe sexually assaulted or whatever, like they kind of blame themselves. Was I wearing something too risque? Was mm-hmm. I putting myself like, too drunk? Like, we, you know, even though none of that is your fault, it's just like that's what we tend to do. And so, for me with the affair, I was like, well, maybe I wasn't a good enough wife. Maybe I wasn't 
And then the shame of actually staying, because like society's like, you know, especially I'm a, I'm a strong, independent woman. I have a mm-hmm. successful career. And I was like, someone like me should leave right away. Like in theory, someone like me should leave the marriage. Like I should just be out. I should be, um, you know, like have my boundary up and go. And because I didn't, I felt really um, embarrassed about mm-hmm. that. A lot of shame around that. Like I should just be able to leave, but I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And so... And I felt like we still had some some processing to do there. Um, and so forgiving myself for his infidelity and then forgiving myself for staying, um, and that was the right decision was to stay for a year. Um, that was a big piece of it. And once I kind of started moving through that and really owning who I am in the world, mm-hmm. not comparing myself to the other woman or whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to your point, you can go through all the forgiveness stuff, mm-hmm. but you also don't want to repeat the same pattern. Yeah. So, um, two things that I did. Number one was even with my ex, we were still friends, and you know there was a piece of me that was still really emotionally attached to him. He was really easy, even though we weren't like physical anymore. We weren't like in a marriage. We were definitely separated. Mm-hmm. It was easy. It was comfortable. You know, I'd go over, hang out, with my dog. Like you know, it was just default, especially in a new city and, and things like that. And, and, and I noticed that because we were still physically hanging out and whatever, I wasn't able to move on energetically, emotionally, romantically even. Mm-hmm. And so the boundary that I set was, look, we're all good. I love you. You know, we're in a good place, whatever, but I can't see you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for how long, but like for now, like I can't have any communication with you. And that was really tough. Cause I, again, like you said, it was easy. It was, it was easy. It was comfortable. It was ever. So I cut it off. And he was really upset. And a couple of times he would text me and be like, oh, like, you know, I can see you're moving on and like all this kind of stuff, right? Like his own insecurities and mm-hmm. coming up. Um, but that was very important for me to be able to. And that's when I finally started moving on romantically, even and like seeing what else is out there and being open to new romantic interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the first thing. And that was really, really important and powerful. And it didn't last like maybe three months or so. And then after that, it was like, cool, like we're both kind of moving on and, and we can kind of talk without there being so much motion. The second thing was in a new relationship. I knew now what I would tolerate mm-hmm. and knew now what was important to me in a partner. Whereas when you're 24 years old and you're like head over heels in love, you almost like fall in love first and then have to reverse engineer all the other stuff. Like, oh yeah, what do I think about communication? What do I think about honesty? Like, I don't even know, right? Right. So I'm much more curated. In my relationship, I just know what are non-negotiables for me. And yes, I want to fall in love and do all those things, but I also want to honor the fact that someone has to have a relationship to honesty. They need to have integrity. And I and I think back then I just assumed that we were all honest. I mm, think we right. personally, oh, do you tell us truth? Oh, yeah, I'm pretty honest. But like most of us lie most like all the time. So and it's it's fine. It's common, but for me, it's very important. I would rather someone tell me the truth, even if it is, I don't want to be with you. This isn't right for me. Uh-huh. Then, then try and hide that and try and have their cake and eat you. Cause I think the biggest thing about fidel- infidelity or betrayal in general is that you feel as though your own choices were taken away from you. Uh-huh. Like I say, it's the exclusivity of the whole thing. Right. So, yeah. I think moving forward, that was really important to me was looking at someone's past and going like, have they had, have they had like a come to Jesus moment where they realize that that honesty really is important. So there's a book that I really love called lying by Sam Harris. And it's a really short book. Like you could probably read it in like a couple hours. Um, and it just makes a very strong case for honesty in all scenarios. And he is like, like he's a, like, he's a philosopher. So like, it really is 
Like, yeah, okay, even when your friend asks you, does this dress make me look fat? Like, yeah, you kind of like say, like, hey, there might be, there's another way, there's a way you can say it in a nice way, but you shouldn't lie, even white lies. And even right. lies, and, and that's just how I live my life now. And it's been kind of tricky, to be honest. I've had very honest conversations with friends, family members, my now boyfriend, that uh-huh. probably would have avoided five years ago. Mm-hmm. But I do it now, and as a result of it, my relationships are a lot deeper. That's cool. Um, you mentioned this concept of like how you blamed yourself. Do you think blaming self creates shame on ourselves? Yes. Like we, yeah. So- yeah. I mean, I think, I do think it does for sure. I mean, I think, um, and it just makes no sense, right? Like we think about it, like, how does it actually help to blame yourself for something you didn't know, you know, at 24 years old, I didn't know how to be in a marriage. I didn't know how to, you know, be in a, I don't know how to like do the things. And looking back, I don't know that I would have done anything different to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Fidelity. Mm-hmm. I can't be, I can't regret who I was back then. Mm-hmm. And does that go, I think, with saying that you also forgive that your 24 year old self or just like not knowing. Um, and I think sometimes forgiveness is just that fact of like, you didn't know any better and just accepting that where does forgiveness and self-acceptance come into play together? So this is a really interesting, I love that you mentioned that because, um, this is a really interesting story. Um, I, I'm, I know that you do a lot of work with the body and the breath and all that kind of stuff. Right. If you've ever done, I think you've done breath work before. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've ne- I'd never done it before. And so this is maybe a few years ago, it's probably two or three years ago. Yeah. Sedona at a retreat and we were going to do like a, a breath workshop, like fire breathing or whatever. And I was like, okay, I don't really know what this is. And they were like, well, maybe set an intention, but something you want to work on, maybe something you think in your past that needs some digging up. Right. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, before we go into this, I don't know what's about to happen, but I'm going to focus on my dad left when I was two years. Like, well, we, my parents got divorced when I was two. And then my dad left when I was five. Okay. You no, know, he was still in my life. He lived 2000 miles away. And like, and so if I think about it, I could maybe go back to like abandonment issues. So like, maybe let me just see what's there. That was my intention. Right. Got it. Get into breath work. And all of a sudden, I'm not seeing anything about my dad. The only thing that comes up is me as a 24-year-old, and I have this wave of compassion for my 24-year-old self. And I just start bawling. I just start like bawling my eyes out, being like, this person couldn't have known mm-hmm. if she didn't know, and you need to be gentle with that. And I just remember just like, I mean, I'm, I'm getting like emotionally I'm talking about it now because it was just like this huge wave of self-compassion for my 24-year-old self that I hadn't allowed myself to feel up until that point. And so that was really powerful. And so when I think self-acceptance, I don't know that you can have forgiveness without acceptance Mm. of people and yourself. I think first, I didn't know what I didn't know. And if I could go back, I don't know if I'd even change it. And you have to kind of own that. That's where I think that comes in. And owning the lessons and owning the journey and realizing that without those things, you wouldn't be the person you are now, Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. But Mm -hmm. I that beating yourself up for things that you didn't know is 100% futile. What's the difference? Um, first off, I just love that story that you share. Um, just because I think we need to hear more of those stories of just how the fact that we can have compassion for those aspects in our lives that we didn't know better then versus that shaming and putting that pressure on ourselves to know better when we were never taught. Um, so thank you for sharing that story. Um, and I find it interesting that you call it like this wave of emotions. Cause I think our body has its own oceanic experience and that's one of the waves that you needed to ride, which is, I know I've had 
my share, fair share of waves. Um, like um, nowhere, right? Like it just, yeah. You. yeah. Like, oh, where did that come from? Okay. <laughs> I'm dealing with that now, right? You can't get away from it. So you mm-hmm. just feel it. There's no way you can get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, that concept of self-acceptance and not shaming ourselves for not knowing any better than where is the difference of going through the process of anger versus self-shame and the importance of going through anger when we're going through this healing process and forgiving? Yeah, it's so important. I think so many of us, I mean, I think, by the way, I think a lot of like the, the idea of shame really to me is a disconnect between what's actually happening mm. The reality of who you are and the reality you think you should be based on societal standards, your parents' standards, like whatever that is, right? That's the right. gap between who you actually are and who you feel like you need to be because mm-hmm. someone in your life or, or society tells you you need to be that. That's mm-hmm. where the gap is, right? That's where I love the concept of ownership because it's just like, I'm not that. And like beating myself for, self up for not being that is not helping me. It's in fact, is a huge distraction that's keeping me from living my, my fullest life or whatever. And so, um, sorry, what was the question? So the um, importance of going through anger, oh, yeah. but also recognizing what anger is versus that self-shaming um, or being hard on ourselves for the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So. Um, I think as women, sometimes we don't like to go into anger because mm. again, like, it goes back to societal standards, right? Like what's mm-hmm. women are crazy, right? Like that's the stereotype. <laughs> yeah. like, oh my God, I'm being that like crazy woman that like, you know, every, it's kind of like a joke, but like, I, I think that anger to me is just another form of grief. And I mm. see this with, um, especially men in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, don't tend to cry. Like uh, my boyfriend doesn't really tend to cry. Like they just have a really hard time crying, but they have very t- easy time getting angry. Yeah. And I think the same emotion, right? I think for women, we tend to cry a little bit more, but whatever. But I, I look at anger as it's, um, it's grieving. It's yeah. grieving for, um, the pain of the thing that like, you know, I'll give you an example. So because of the infidelity now I have, or I could have this narrative that all men cheat. I mm. could have narrative that like this person isn't my new boyfriend isn't trustworthy I could have the narrative of he is wanting to be with someone else right I could take that narrative mm-hmm. and blanket across all my relationships moving forward and so when that stuff starts coming up for me in my current relationship I get fucking pissed mm-hmm. about the infidelity of my husband I'm like I really hate that affair sometimes mm-hmm. you know so I think it's okay to go into that space and just be like, yes, this absolutely sucks. And I hate that this happened, even though in my highest self, I'm like, I'm grateful. And like, and it's all true, right? I, like intellectually, I'm like, yes, I'm grateful. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing these things. I wouldn't be helping women this way, whatever. I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if it hadn't happened. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I think you can hold both spaces at once, which is this fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. And I wish it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And it was so painful. And I, I just hate that I had to go through that to get to this thing. And even though this thing over here is amazing and I'm grateful also, and I think, I think you can hold them both at the same time, right? You can hate this thing. And so for me, so for me, anger is really just grieving the fact that you are a different person now for having gone through something hard yeah. and you need to have anger. You need to have grief in order to move through. You need to, because here's the thing, you know, this Anna, like mm-hmm. if you, Start stuffing those feelings. Mm-hmm. They're gonna come up in what, like, whether it's an illness, whether it's in 
create, you know, relationships moving forward, whether it's, in, I mean, it can manifest physically, right? So yeah, you have to have that. And I mean, this mm -hmm. is your work. So like you can speak this, speak to this a lot more than I can. So I think if you try to shove down those feelings, um, they come out a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, what you say about anger is so spot on about it's a form of grief. I just came back from a funeral from a woman who passed away. She was 99 grandma figure in my life thought for sure she was going to make it to a hundred. She was going to be a hundred December, um, eighth. Wow. And I drove back from Spokane last night to Seattle just because of work in my schedule right now, but I screamed most of the ride home. And I think with anger, one of the things people have a hard time with is not really fully expressing is the fact of like, they don't even know how to have a safe space to express their anger. So um, what were some of the ways that you were able to express your anger? I know for me, it's the open road where no one can hear me and my music's blaring. Like I can feel the, like the bass pumping through my car. Like that's what gets me to be able to release. What are some ways that you were able to release that anger? You know, yeah, I think for me, uh, most of mine manifested in um, sadness and crying and um, self-righteousness. Um, but I did have my moments for sure. Um, so when I left my marriage, I was driving cross country and that's when I got a lot of my anger out. That's when I got my, a lot of my sadness out. I actually didn't listen to like any music or anything like that the whole way across country. Wow. Um, it was just alternating kind of like crying and then just being silent and then like just screaming at times I would get to the hotel where I was staying overnight and, and literally just punch the pillows, like punch pillows because I was like, I can't deal with this. Like it's inside and it needs to come out some way. And it's mm. Eyeballs and it's coming out of my sweat glands, right? It's like it's coming out, right? Yeah. And the other way that has been has been extremely important to me is is exercise. I mean, it is like mm -hmm. my thing that I go in, and for me, you know, I don't really do meditation or anything. Like getting under a heavy barbell to me is my form of meditation. Like yeah. when I'm there, like there's no way I can be not focused on just getting out of my head and into my body. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important thing is, you know, like you can't afford to be thinking and, and doing the mental aerobics when you have, you know, 185 pounds on your right. back, you've got to just be with it and stay present. And so for me, that was, uh, some of the most important thing was just seeing that as an outlet as well. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly had uh, many chats with girlfriends where I just call them up and say, Hey, you know, I know I've talked about this a million times, but can you hold space for me? Cause I just have to mm -hmm. go off motherfucker. Like that was literally, yeah. Like, yeah. So it wasn't even necessarily like screaming. It was just like, mm -hmm. let me be mad. Can I just vent to you for the next right. couple can you just agree with me that like this is all bullshit? You know what I mean? And I knew intellectually that I would get over it. I knew, I knew I'd be okay. I knew eventually I would be okay. But in those moments, I think it's important to have someone in your life or people in your life that you can go to when you just want to be your base self. Mm. You don't want to be the highest version. You don't want to be the most small version. You don't want to take the high road. You want to be the, the base level self. And those people can hold space for you and love you and know mm. that that's just a shadow side of what you're going through. And that doesn't mean anything about you. Mm -hmm. And you have to have people in your life that that's safe to, to talk to about. Yeah. I know when you made that move um, from North Carolina to LA area, your workouts even changed. Can you talk a little bit about why you made that switch during this whole process? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So actually it really, more had to do with the fact that I was really coming out of an obsessive exercise phase in my life. So I was a competitor for many years and mm-hmm. um, my, my metabolism just wasn't responding as it did early on in my career. And so I was having to do more and more exercise I was doing and the more, and we know this, the more exercise we do, the less intense it is, right? Like you just, right. It becomes more moderate intensity. So I was doing two to three hours of moderate intensity cardio every day, like getting on and watching television shows on the elliptical, like stuff like that. Um, and I was so miserable because it was, it felt like a full-time job. If I wasn't at the gym, I was thinking about when I had to go back to the gym, how many more minutes I had to do all this uh-huh. kind of stuff. And I never stopped to ask myself, like, is this actually working? It was just like this road that I went down. Yeah. And I got to the point of like just complete misery with it that I threw my hands up. And when I was going through all the stuff, in my relationship, I was like, I am so emotionally bogged down with all the relationship stuff. Like I don't have the space for this to be a full-time job anymore. Mm-hmm. And I had also just started Jillifit a few years prior and I was trying to build my business. And so I ended up moving to Europe for uh, nine weeks during that year. Uh-huh. But I was like, uh, we were staying together slash I was trying to like figure out how to do stuff on my own because I hadn't been single since I was 18. So I moved to Europe for nine weeks. And during that time, I didn't exercise at all. I was just like, the only way is just like not exercise at all. I was like, I just can't do the two hours of cardio. I don't know what else to do. Right. So I, at all. I just walked. I drank a lot of wine. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> some bread. I did the things. And then when I got back, I'd only been home for about a week. And then that's when I decided to move. And so by the time I got to LA, one of the main reasons why I picked up different form of exercise because I had that washout period. I was like, I don't even know what works anymore. Mm-hmm. So I joined two CrossFit gyms when I moved to LA, mostly for social reasons. Uh-huh. I was like, you know what? Let me just have someone else tell me what to, how to exercise for the next little bit because I'm just so sick of this and I don't really know what type of exercise I should be doing. I know I don't want to do what I was doing. Mm-hmm but I need something that's going to keep me engaged. And I started doing CrossFit and I started falling in love with metabolic conditioning. And after that, my workouts have never been over 30 minutes since then. And that was about four years ago. And so it's changed and I I don't do CrossFit anymore. I've gone back to some more traditional bodybuilding and powerlifting and stuff like that. But my workouts are always short. They're always intense. No more modern intensity cardio. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm in and out. And to me, from a brain brain power perspective, it's so much more manageable. Mm-hmm. Nice. I know um, you talk a lot on social media, but just like that body acceptance too, um, and how you struggled with just the size of your thighs. Can you touch a little bit about that and just how we as women struggle maybe with like this body acceptance? I know for me, it's been my biceps. Like everywhere I go, everyone's like, can you please flex? And I'm like, are you for real? Like, <laughs> I don't want to flex for you, <laughs> but yeah. that's something like I've had to learn to accept of myself. Like, this is just naturally who I am. Can you touch a little bit of, um, how you got to a place where you finally like owned your physique? Mm-hmm. It's, it took a long time. You know, I was just saying to my boyfriend, like last week, I was like, it's so weird to be in a place where you spent your entire life hating a body part and now you actually like really like it and like want to show them off. Like, so my legs were that for me, just like from a genetic standpoint, my dad has huge muscular thighs. My mom had just huge legs. Uh-huh. Um, not really muscular, but um, from a genetic standpoint, I just was, that's just my build. Right. And so I remember growing up and I always had, and I grew up sprinting with the neighborhood kids and playing sports and playing soccer and running around and jumping and doing all those things. And so I had the genetic component. Plus I had, the sports aspect, which just totally made my legs so muscular and bigger than everyone else, especially when I'm like 12 years old, 14 years old. I'm so embarrassed because I'm like, 
I'm the only person who has large thighs. They should be smaller. They're too muscular, too masculine, whatever. I would always wear, um, you know, long leggings. I would always wear pants during the summer. I would always wear, um, like my thighs would chafe. Like I was the only kid in like on track practice that thought who their thighs would chafe. Like when they mm-hmm. ran, so I had to wear leggings mm-hmm. under my short, you know, running shorts. Right. Um, and I just was always trying to minimize them as much as possible. Like, oh, don't notice my legs. Don't notice my legs. Um, and when I started competing, it continued because they were my problem area, right? Mm-hmm. Like they weren't, they were never small enough. My upper body wasn't big enough because it it's symmetry, right? So you're, you know, your legs need to be tight and small and your upper body needs to be a little bit bigger and you need to look like symmetrical front, you know, top to bottom, side to mm-hmm. side. And always the judges, the feedback was, you got to get your legs down. You got to get your legs down. You got to get your ass down. You got to get your legs down. And so I would spend a lot of time trying to bring up my lats and bring up my shoulders and just like burn muscle in my legs and burn fat in my legs. Uh This one time I got on stage, the leanest my legs had ever been. I had done 500 walking lunges, six days a week. Oh, wow. Straight. (laughs) I was doing 20 minutes of walking lunges every single day for 10 weeks. Um, And on top of that, doing hours of cardio and all that kind of stuff. Uh And so, and even then they were still the biggest on stage, which, and so it's fine. Except that I was like, okay, I did everything I possibly could to get them as small as possible. Mm-hmm. This is what I have. This is genetically what I've been given. Right. Asking for smaller legs would be like asking to grow two inches. It's the same thing. Right. It's the same thing. Um, and so it just took me a long time. Luckily, I think like more shape and muscle and curviness has been in the last, like I would say five years or so, at least mm-hmm. from a cultural perspective. And also I started training differently. I start, stopped doing a lot of long duration cardio. I started doing more metabolic conditioning, more heavy lifting, and my legs look athletic. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have as much cellulite as I once did. They don't look as like soft as they once did. They're a little bit stronger now and I'm almost 40. So I'm like, okay, now I'm almost 40. I'm proud of this shit, right? Yeah. At 14, 12, 16, 21, I was really self-conscious. Now I'm like, damn, I'm doing pretty good. And I just own it. And to me, I get it's the number one thing that people notice about me still strangers walking down the street, probably like you. Yeah. Dudes like nice quads. And I'm like, thank you. It's the number one thing that you notice about me when you see me. And so it just is what it is. And so I'm like, again, going back, going back to the regret thing, I can beat myself up about it or I can just mm-hmm. like, this is who I am and own it and be an example to other people. Yeah. Did you have to do any forgiveness work around any of that to finally get to a place where you felt like you could accept your physique? I think I did, but it wasn't, you know, I think I didn't as much because I was like, it's not really my fault. You yeah. I mean, I think I would have yeah. up more if it was my fault that like I had big legs, but it really wasn't. I came mm-hmm. down to when I started positioning it as like, I might as well be asking to be five, two, right? Like I'm never going to be Jamie. I'm five, seven. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be Jamie Eason. I'm going to be this like tiny petite person. Uh-huh. I remember ever in my life weighing less than 140 pounds. Like, I mean, I don't remember time before, I, you know, weighed 140 and now I weigh like 155 and I'm like, that's just who I am. And like, I don't, and so I think the scale and getting over my relationship with the scale was really important too. And just realizing that I looked, I looked leaner than people who were 15 pounds heavier than me or 15 mm-hmm. pounds, uh, I'm sorry, uh, weighed less than I did. I looked leaner than them. So I was like, okay, this is just weird. I have a weird body. I'm going to just <laughs> because I can't make sense of it. So it is what it is. I'm going to do the best with what I can. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, going back to this practice of forgiveness, you talked a lot about how your body was like 
letting go. Like it was letting go through your tears. It was letting go through your sweat glands. Forgiveness, a lot of people, I think, coin it as this concept of letting go. But is there a point within the practice where you have to to let go, you have to hold on to something. Um, so with that, where is that process of acknowledging that you hold that, held on to something to let go within forgiveness? Mm-hmm. So I would say for me, the highest level of expression um, is self-trust. And the reason mm-hmm. why I tend to think about, like when you say holding on to, I tend to think about control. I know for mm-hmm. me, exercise with control mechanism, right? Being in this quote, perfect marriage was a control mechanism, you know, being super successful or having the perfect body, getting up on stage, right? These are all control mechanisms. Mm-hmm. If I just do these things, these external validators, then on some level, I'm good enough. And so all of that's about control. And to me, I see control and trust as opposites and mm-hmm. going through my relationship stuff was the very first time that I had to be like, this is out of my control. I can't make my husband want to be with me. I can't make my husband not be in love with this woman anymore. I can't make him do the thing. Whereas everything else in my life up until that point, it really was like, I just apply myself. I work hard. I get the results. And because this was the first time that I ran up against something that I couldn't control, it was extremely disorienting to me. So I realized that I couldn't control another person, but Mm -hmm. what I could control is I could trust that no matter what happened, that I would get through it. And so to me, control is fine, but it's also, it can be crippling and it's very fragile because mm-hmm. it can go away just like that. I noticed in my marriage, right? I feel in control. Oh, your husband cheated on you. He's been with another woman for two years. I can't control that. That is, it's fragile. It can just be taken from you. Mm-hmm. But what can be taken from you is the trust piece, is the self-trust piece. So when I worry about trusting my current boyfriend, oh, like me, you know, is he thinking about being with someone else and all these kind of narratives that I could put on the relationship, Mm -hmm. I go back to, I don't need to trust him so long as I trust myself. That like, sure, if if there is something going on, I'll find out at at some point, or maybe there isn't anything going on and whatever. And, and, And so for me, regardless of what's going on, I trust that I can get through it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it comes down to, at least for me, um, the part that I hold on to is that the part that I hold on to is I'll get through this. I've gone through before. I know mm-hmm. I'm strong enough. I don't like it. I won't like it. I'd be devastated if something happened, but mm-hmm. I do trust myself to get through it. And so I think the part that I hold on to is really the self-trust piece and realize that control is fine. Um, but when you're going through something like that, some like tumultuous in your marriage or in your career or something like that you live in uncertainty for a time. Mm-hmm. You, you just want there to be a decision. Yeah. What's going to be, what's going to look like, what are we going to do? And I remember, especially dating, you know, with, some, with someone who was eight years older than me and who had been kind of almost like a mentor at times to mm-hmm. me, I looked at him and I was like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? And he just looked at me and he said, Jill, I've never gone through this either. So I don't know. And that was the first moment that I was like, oh mm-hmm. shit, we're in uncharted territory together. Like we don't, mm-hmm one of us. There's no blueprints for like what you're supposed to do in this scenario. And that was a moment to like really just turn inward and go like, okay, there isn't like something to do right this second. There's not a decision that needs to be made right this second. It's just like the decision is I sit in indecision right now. Mm. me uncomfortable, but I got really good at being uncomfortable. And I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do next week or next month, but at least I can just do the next thing today. Mm-hmm. And so I find comfort in that. So the thing that I hold on to is that. Awesome. How, um, or what advice do you have for the listeners to develop that self-trust? 
God, yes. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> not wish something on an A1 listening. <laughs> like one of the things that I tell, you know, some of my friends and even some of my coaching clients is like when they're going through something, I'm like, I hate that for you, but I also love it for you because mm-hmm. I just know that there's that ability. And by the way, not everyone does that, by the way. Like there's plenty of people who are still hurt and angry and have never forgiven 20 years, 20 years later. And that's mm-hmm. okay. That's just their process. But there's an opportunity given when um, options have been taken away from you or when the things that you thought you could control aren't controllable anymore. And so the way that you can build self-trust is through having more experiences. So for me, my, my friend Jillian Tita, she always says, it's easy to be all good when everything's all good. Mm-hmm. And I love that because for me, it's like, oh yeah, I'm like, I got my relationship and like business is going good. Like everything's good. It's like, of course I, I'll, I can handle whatever. But you don't know what you can handle until it happens to you. Mm-hmm. And so to build self and then see yourself go through it. And so for me, there was a lot of power in looking back at the last five years and really going like, wow, I, I did a lot. I would never have done those things had it, this not happened. But now I have a show of evidence that I'm a strong ass woman, right? Like I didn't know that before necessarily because mm-hmm. it's easy about good and everything's all good. It's like, in theory, I can know like, oh yeah, I'm like I'm good, this is, this is fine. But when you have to actually go through something and you get to the other side of it, the more you can see yourself survive hard things, mm-hmm. the more you build that self-trust and that self-efficacy and that confidence. And so as much as I would like hate it on someone, it doesn't have to be something that big, but it could be just putting yourself out in business. It could be starting your own business. It could be leaving a job. It could be, um, you know, leaving a marriage. It could be driving across the country. There's, these are some bigger things you can do, but you can do some small things too. Vulnerability is one way in some way. And so I work with a lot of online, like you, Anna, like Mm -hmm. online fitness entrepreneurs. And it starts out with just small steps, like sharing something really vulnerable on the internet putting it out for public consumption. That can feel really scary, but you get to the other side of it and you go like, wow, like I still survived that. And like, it's okay. And like, I actually got some people reaching out and saying that they appreciated it. So you see yourself do these hard things and start building up a show of evidence that you can do hard things. And then you go, okay, well, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I know whatever it is, I can handle it. And that's a proper place to be. And that's where it really self-trust is built. Mm-hmm. Nice. Awesome. Just the reps. Like you always say. It is, man. <laughs> I hate it and I love it, but really there's no, there's no skipping steps. Yeah. So someone who is, uh, I'll give you an example, like one of my brothers, I love him and he's extremely principled. Like he's, he's a lot younger than I am. He's very principled. He has an idea of anything that happens. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. And by the way, you guys, like I had said to myself, like, oh, if I ever found out my husband's having an affair, I'm leaving the second it happens. Right. Like that's mm-hmm. what we all had said. Right. But I found out that when shit hits the fan, like things might be different. And so my brother, as principles as he is, he hasn't as much life experience. So like, to me, it's important to Mm -hmm. have the theory and what you would do if something happened and like know yourself in that way, but you never truly know yourself until the rubber meets the road and you have to make some decisions. Mm -hmm. So I do wish more hard experiences on people. I just always go back to the analogy, like you don't get stronger without heavy weights. Like that's just where my mind goes. And like some of the things in life, like some of those heartaches and the hardships in life, that's how you develop the strength that you can't have the strength without that. And it's the same, you know, like physics with, you know, strength training, it's the same thing. Um, so that's where my mind goes. Like the hard stuff is like 
always hard to go through, but you're going to have so much more at the end of it. <laughs> so, you know, what's cool about weight training is that like, we do it to ourselves, right? We're like, okay, right. and like pick up the heaviest weights. Right. So could you, and so my question is, can we mm. replicate some of the life lessons without having to sit back and wait for a husband to cheat on us? Right. Like, I don't know that, oh, right. that I think we can put ourselves in positions where we're under heavy weight. Mm-hmm. And to rise to the occasion. So my ex-husband ironically calls this fear PRs. I call them like vulnerability PRs. Like yeah, in a situation where so for me going to Europe and living by myself when I had really done it, I hadn't gone out to dinner by myself up until that point. That was a fear PR. It was like let me see how I do at this. And I just started by the way. Mm-hmm. If you're listening, to this, you're like oh, like I don't know if I could ever do that. I just went out to dinner by myself for the first time. I went up to the mountains of North Carolina for two days by myself and just nice. like what that felt like, you know? Yeah. If you're listening to this, you might be like, oh, I do this shit all the time, Jill. What's the big deal? But for me, that was a big step. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's ways that we can replicate this. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because when you say that, I'm like, I do that all the time. Like I'm so comfortable by myself, but I'm like, I have to do the opposite. I have to put myself out there. I have to let, you know, friends invite me to things and be like, okay, I'm going. <laughs> Shit, like, what am I doing with all these people? Like, I'm used to being by myself. So it's, it's just, I think it's a concept of knowing yourself well enough to know how to put yourself into those positions of those vulnerability PRs yep. and getting yourself to a place that is uncomfortable, that's going to allow you to grow. Totally. And you know, one of the things that I talk to and I talk to you guys a lot that's in business is going to live events, like going yeah. to um, like going to live events. So scary only because like, especially if you're not used to doing that, right? It's money. It's time. It's time away from a job that you're maybe not making money at if you're not there physically. Mm-hmm. It's so much easier to just be like, ah, oh, it's such a hassle. I'm not going to go. But you know this, like live events are transformational, yeah. not even from the perspective of like what you learn. Like I don't remember half the things that I learned at a conference. What I remember is the people that I meet, the discomfort that I endure, yeah. have, like wear a name tag and be like, hello, how are you? And like meet somebody, right? And put yourself in those positions and you come back and you're changed and you see yourself invest money and invest time to go to a thing that you never would have done that. Most people don't do that. So I always say going to a live event or going to a conference or traveling or going somewhere, it's a 1% interaction. Most people don't do it. It's a very easy way to just be like, I'd never do this. Okay, I'm going to do it, right? And, and so those things, I ask myself, what would I normally not do? Mm-hmm. And then what's the opposite of that? Yeah, yeah. We're, um, so a lot of times I know this is one of the things I struggle with. When I do put myself out there, there's that, that shame voice that pops back in. How, when you put yourself out there in those like uncomfortable places or those, what you call the vulnerable PRs, how do you keep that shame voice quiet within yourself? Um, and is there a practice of forgiveness with that as you are taking those steps for personal growth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where I think expectation management comes into place. Uh, One of my favorite things is going like, hey, if I'm trying something I've never tried, it's like, I don't know, say you sign up for like a, your first triathlon, uh-huh. right? So yes, you can prepare uh, physically. You can like be like, okay, I can, I've been swimming, I've been running, I've been biking. Like you can prepare yourself physically, but what you can't prepare yourself it for is the actual like being at the race, the transitions, getting my shoes on. Like you can't, like no matter all the preparation you do, you're never going to be able to experience what it's like to do it without doing it. And so once you do it, you're like, oh, this is how the transitions work. This is where I need to put my shoes. This is where I have to put my bike. This is where this goes. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. but you can't ever know that until you do it. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a level. So I always, I never judge myself for things that I could never know without I'm doing it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So when the shame comes up, I'm like, I might fall flat on my face, but also I've never done this before. So yeah. I'm like, okay. Right. So it almost is a get out of jail free card. It's like, well, I mean, you never done this before. So yeah. but then there's, you know, there is a trap of, okay, I've done this a million times. I should be able to excel at this, mm. which can also be a trap. Mm-hmm. personal development. I don't know if you had this experience, Anna, but I remember when I first started reading personal development books and I was like getting it right. I was like, Oh, okay. I understand this. I have more awareness. And then shit would happen. And I'm like, and I would, I'd be back to my most insecure self again. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I should know. This. <laughs> yeah. I the should book. game, which is awful. Yeah. I mean, so there's always shame, right? My, my, my kind of like spiritual mentor, he calls it like the double shame, right? It's like, the shame of like doing the thing. And that's a shame that I should have known better not to do the thing. And so it's like that double level. And so it's uh-huh. just, I look at it like it's a distraction from uh-huh. what I actually want to do, which is get better at this thing. Um, you know, I think picking a hobby or picking a skill that you're not supposed to be good at. And most people don't do stuff like that because they're not good at it. I think, you know, that I just started uh, snowboarding last year. Yeah. I'd never done any winter sports like ever in my life. I'd never even like skied once or even done like anything or skateboard or whatever. So uh, when I went, it was so uh, embarrassing. I was with my boyfriend and I was just like, you know, I was embarrassed. I was holding up the whole group. I was going so slow. I was like, don't look at me. Like, just go. Like, I was like crying down the mountain, like all these kind of things. Right. But yeah, yeah. stuck with it. Uh-huh. And around like day six or seven, and, like it just clicked for me. And it just like, and I, and I was able to turn and I was able to go faster and I was able to like all this kind of stuff happened. But in the past, I don't know that I would have stuck through it day six. Mm-hmm. So much discomfort and so much embarrassment of mm-hmm. like, oh my God. But then I reminded myself, like, I've never done this before. These right. people have been snowboarding since they were in high school, uh-huh. right? Like, I'm new to this mm-hmm. and it's their choice if they want to hang out and wait for me or, you know, not. So I think detaching from other people's experience too is important like their perception of you, mm-hmm. whatever realm, right? So if you're feeling shame, it's probably on some level, you feel like you should be doing something different or you should be portraying yourself in a different way or you're worried about how you're being perceived. Mm-hmm. Detaching from that and going like, that's not my business to manage. Mm-hmm. All I can manage is my own attitude, my own effort. That really helped me. I know just for I'm like being in the fitness industry, at least for me, we kind of put this like pressure on ourselves of like, because I'm in the fitness industry, I should be good at all things. Fitness. I don't know if that was the same for you when you learned how to snowboard, but listeners know I've been learning how to surf and I call it like this fun frustration. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's this concept of like sticking at it. Like I had lessons back to back. The first day I put too much pressure on myself of like, I got to get up. You know, I took um, lessons when I was down at your mastermind in LA the lessons here in Washington, completely different. And I was so frustrated because I couldn't get up the first day. Second day I got out and I had like this complete different mind switch or switch. So just like, he's teaching me something completely new. It's a competitive board. It's different, different lessons. And I just had to be completely open to that with forgiveness and this practice of forgiveness and accepting self. Where does this concept of being open come into play? I think, at least for me, the most empowering thing is being okay with not being good. Ah. You know, so I mean, uh-huh. it's because 
I don't know if you ever watched, like, I don't really watch television, but sometimes I'll catch, like, the American Idol, like, uh, auditions or whatever, mm-hmm. like, those shows, like, those talent shows. Right. And, so and I'm like, do these people really think that they can sing, right? But I'm like, you know what? It takes a lot of balls to get up there. Yeah. Like, whether this is a joke or this is real, but, like, wow, like, someone is doing something that they are terrible at, but they're so passionate about it. And I'm like, there's a level of respect that I have for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. When I look at people who are really scared to look silly. Mm. I, I am like, I don't want to be like that. I want to be okay. Not being good at it. I want to be okay. Mm. looking silly. I want to be, um, and I think that there's power, at least from an exam, an exemplar standpoint of owning something and, mm-hmm. and showing that it's that you're not like, not showing the final product, you know, not showing mm-hmm. like the polished version. Um, because I think we do have an epidemic of shame mm-hmm. and I, it's extremely, it's, it's an epidemic. Mm-hmm. So I think the more that people who are more visible, I don't know if that, you know, you're online, you're on the internet, whatever, right. you can show the, the humanity uh-huh. of you, whatever that looks like in whatever capacity and just own it. Um, I think that's what we need to see more of. I think mm-hmm. we need to all see each other owning the things that we suck at and, and almost, I mean, I try to use, um, some, I mean, like a, like some self-deprecation about it, like laugh about it. Like I try uh-huh. and have humor to not make it as so serious all the time. Right. Yeah. Oh, like deep down, I really do want to get better at the thing. I try mm-hmm. to use some self-deprecation, humility, um, laughter, humor. I try to use those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, completely own it. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And I, I want to see more and more people owning that stuff. Yeah. I the times that I have competed and like there, I remember one competition, it was right before regionals and I missed the gate. So my whole pass with, um, water skiing didn't count. Wow. And I, ha- and I was just like going back to my car crying. Yeah. And I remember I was like, I have, I can't hold on to that. Like, there's no way I can hold on to that for my next set. And right. I went back out, skied the course. Um, and I was just laughing at the other end. I was like, I just got to make this fun. I got to like take the pressure off of myself. I just got to enjoy the fact that I'm out on the water. And that was like the same concept I had with surfing the following day. I was like, I didn't laugh once the first day I put so much pressure on myself. I didn't even enjoy it. And I think sometimes when we're learning something new, we forget that, like that joy aspect. Um, I know with going through heartache and like hardship, do you think that there's a possibility of finding joy in the midst of that? There is, you know, so I have an, a podcast called the best life podcast. Yes. And we started the podcast because both the co-host Danny J and myself went through very similar circumstances. And I know that, um, so at the end of my relationship, everything was so heavy all the time. It was like long conversations, serious conversations, lots of tears, super heavy. You know, it almost felt like levity would um, let us off the hook, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like, oh my God, mm-hmm. if we laughed about this, then all of a sudden it was okay. And I didn't want to laugh about it because mm-hmm. it wasn't. Um, and so when I moved to LA and then Danny moved out a year later after her husband also had an affair, she came out, stayed with me. And we were laughing and crying so much when she, the first year she was out there, it was like all we could do to get through it. Like I uh-huh. honestly feel like you get to the point where like you have to laugh because it's the only way you can get through it. Mm-hmm. And you cry and you have anger and you have all those other emotions too. And I remember just thinking to myself, I have not laughed this much in, and I don't know how many years, like, I don't yeah. know. And so I think 
and part of what we were laughing at was just the ridiculousness of being in that situation. Like when it was totally out of the blue for both of us and we started dating and we're going on these like just ridiculous first dates and like, you just have to laugh because you're like, this is totally the twilight zone. I never thought in a million years I would be here doing this thing, but I am now. It's almost so ridiculous that like the only option is to laugh. And I just found a lot of um, safety and joy in that process. No matter mm-hmm. what back now, I'm like, I can't believe I was even like, fuck it, like with those guys, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. I would never go on those dates now, but... <laughs> Back then, it was just like, you were just, and we had the saying when she first moved out, what else are you supposed to do? Like, it was always, what else are you supposed to do? Like, what else are you supposed to do? Like, this is where we're at right now. Yeah. Our mantra is like, what else are you supposed to do? So I think that gave us permission to just be where we were at. Mm -hmm. And I remember just making the intention that like, I want to laugh. I want to have joy in my life. I haven't done that in a very long time. And that was my reality. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and so we started the podcast about a year later. Nice. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of like creating something similar to what you did with the podcast out of some heartaches that you may have? Yeah, I think, I think it is a, personally, I think it is a disservice. If you have, if you go through something, you come out on the other side with an insight and you don't share it. Mm. And I, that's, I'm a creator. Like I'm an entrepreneur. I have a business. Like I am a coach. I like that kind of stuff for me. Mm -hmm always the most cathartic way of dealing with something. I see a lot of people sharing before I feel like they fully process, which is also okay. But to me, it's a little bit of a disservice if you don't have a handle on it. If you don't have the full awareness of like what you're doing, I think it can be a little harmful, to be honest. If you're not fully processed with something and then you're trying to teach it, I think it can be a disservice and it could potentially be harmful, if that makes sense. My process right. is a lot longer. Um, and when I came out on the other side, I actually talked about it publicly, um, my relationship. And I just said, you know, I know, cause we were, had like kind of a public relationship. So I know mm-hmm. a lot of people knew him mm-hmm. and would be really mad at him and would feel all feel, feel their own sense of betrayal as a result of sharing this. Cause a lot of people put us up on this pedestal and that's a whole other conversation. But as a result of that, I, I had made this kind of blanket disclaimer. I don't want any of your anger. Like, I don't want like any like comments from the peanut gallery to me. That's not really like, I get it. I get why you're, why you feel that way. But believe me, I've thought about this all like all the way through. And a lot of people are still like, I can't believe you're friends with your ex. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the process for me has been, um, going through that and then talking about it after in a way that is of service to others, mm-hmm. not just a dumping. I don't mm-hmm. think be like, hey, do you agree that he's an asshole? Yeah, he's an asshole. Like, and we both get on the same team. Like, that doesn't really help. What helps is, hey, this is what I went through. Um, it sucked, mm-hmm. and I hated it every minute of it. But on the other side of this, here's the things that I learned. And I'm not saying that I don't wish this upon you. I'm not saying you should do what I did. But I want you to at least see an example of what a struggle looks like start to finish. And I think, mm-hmm. again, that's a service. I don't think start to halfway. I think start to finish is an exa- is a way to share something if you have a lesson. And it's not that the person reading that can duplicate it necessarily. I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, if you did it, I know that you did that. I think that makes me feel like I can do it too. I'm in a position where I want to leave my relationship or I need to change my relationship. And seeing what you've gone through has given me permission to, and that's really powerful. So to me, I do think that we have an obligation to share, but Mm -hmm. only once we have a level of understanding that Mm -hmm. super emotionally charged. Yeah. Yeah. 
Awesome. Um, we're going to be wrapping it up. Is there anything else that you would like to share on the topic of forgiveness and the fitness aspect of it? Ah, man. No, I just, I love this conversation and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. It's been a long time since I've talked about forgiveness. I, I think that, you know, I think forgiveness is mostly for you. I think the idea, you know, I had this insight, like my ex didn't need to be forgiven. He wasn't like begging me for forgiveness mm -hmm. all the time, right? Like he was kind mm -hmm. of doing his own thing. He was doing, dealing with his own struggles. For me, forgiveness was so that I could move on mm -hmm. from the, the, the like the self-righteousness, the pain, the hurt, the stubbornness that I was holding on to that mm -hmm. I move on romantically, energetically, emotionally. And so having that moment at Byron Katie's event really was just for me and it didn't really change anything for him. He's still living his life, right? He, like right. he wasn't eating outside my door to be forgiven. He was <laughs> all of his life, right? And so uh, forgiveness really was for me. And so I just appreciate being able to talk about this. Awesome. One last question. Where do you think forgiveness lives within the body? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, it was, it was a chest feeling. It was, mm. it was here and it was here. It was here. Mm -hmm. and, it was here. and I think that, you know, the throat stuff was a lot around the communication mm -hmm. issue of like not wanting to say the thing or being unable to say the thing or holding back from saying the thing or not having the words to articulate the thing. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of it was in the throat and in the chest, like it's just a heaviness here of knowing that there's something there that needs changing. Right. So my words, everything I'm saying, I'm, I'm angry, I'm pissed off, I'm whatever, all valid but also holding me back. And so for me, it was definitely like a throat thing and a chest thing. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah, you got yeah. it. Well, Strong Ones, thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it out with your family and friends, and then make sure you give a comment and the five stars below to help the show grow. Other than that, we will, I will be back next week. Until then, peace and out. Hey, Strong Ones, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I am super excited to invite you to my private Facebook group where we will be able to continue the conversations from these episodes. I'll share you my wisdom and knowledge about the artistic tool, the kettlebell, and other insights on how to live a healthy and whole life. Click the link below. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review with the five stars. It will help grow the show and spread this wisdom and knowledge of how to live a healthy and whole life to other people who may need it as well. Blessings on your journey and I look forward to connecting to you on Facebook. <laughs>